and scholars. You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm so excited to welcome a longtime decade-old friend of mine. We were just saying how depressing that is. Uh, Alok is an internationally acclaimed gender non-conforming writer and performance artist. They are the author of Femme in Public and Beyond the Gender Binary. And today, we are going to be talking about some beauty, self-acceptance, resisting norms, and unlocking creative self-expression welcome thanks so much for having me it's so exciting to talk to you in this forum i know it's so strange because it's it's all professional <laughs> and i like heard your voice shift into like podcast yes, voice. i'm in podcast <laughs> mode right now <laughs> sexy i like it i kind of speak okay. like nutella you know Oh, smooth. Okay, well, I obviously, I'm biased, but I obviously think that you're one of the most glamorous and fashionable icons that I know. Um, I obviously I, agree with you, too. <laughs> but I would love to know, how how do you define beauty? Like, what does beauty mean to you? Mm-hmm. Beauty is looking like yourself. And I think that begs the question, how do you know what yourself is in a world that indoctrinates you? into a certain set of norms. And I think that's one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about today is I think people really want like fixed categories and answers, but actually the truth of the world is everything is a process and self-acceptance and self-knowledge is not like a destination that you achieve by like doing yoga 10 times or like reading these books, despite what all the self-help kind of world will teach you. Way to ruin my whole career. (laughs) Self-acceptance and self, self-awareness is like, it's like a habit that we have to have all the time. And so for me, beauty is a work in progress. It's not like beauty looks like this. And for me, beauty is not actually even really about a physical manifestation. It's more of a spiritual and emotional awareness that maybe has a visual component, but that's like the tip of the iceberg. And so for me, when I say beauty is about looking looking like yourself, what I'm saying is the people that I find most beautiful are the people who have done deep spiritual self-inquiry and are actually expressing to the world their own unique signature. And what I love about signatures is that there are no two signatures that look alike. Like I could study your signature, but I would never get it the way that you do. It's you, a signature, like a scream, like a laugh, like a moan. These are all things that are particular to you. And I worry that we live in a template culture where people only become known and become beautiful and become understood if they use pre-existent frameworks to articulate themselves. And that's not beautiful to me, that's erasure. Beauty shouldn't require disappearing ourselves into a template and recreating a fantasy or mirage of what we think think that things should be. I think beauty should actually constantly make us uncomfortable should constantly make us pause and say, huh, this is new. And I love it because it's also spiritual growth also allows you to be like, wow, we're all spontaneous, hyper complex, complicated, transformative beings. And no two people are alike. And there's such a deep beauty in that. Every time you talk, I really would say that Nutella is a great way to describe it. (laughs) I feel like every every nerve in my body just like gets electrified. Like it really speaks to me on a, on a soul level. And I think this is always a a power that you've had, but just wanted to, to fangirl about that for a second. But in terms of the, the beauty stuff, then knowing that we are so impacted by all of the pressures that are going on around us, like how do we even know what is our desire and like, what is us? What is authentically us? Mm -hmm. So I just want to let everyone listening, Nicolette and I are about to go into extreme hippie territory, but the truth is it's not actually hippie. And I'll explain why. I think that one of the biggest failures of the Western education system is it's made art and creativity a hobby 
and not something that's integrated into the curriculum like math. Mm-hmm. I actually think flexing our creativity is how we develop emotional intelligence. And I'm frustrated by the category artist because I think all people are artists. And I think that those of us who identify as artists are people who are honest about our artistry and are people who have had people in our lives who nurtured and said, hey, your creativity actually matters. A lot of people haven't had that. A lot of people haven't had people in their families or their communities or their friends saying, I love your creativity and I want you to work on it. And here's the truth. Creativity was how I wrote myself into existence. I started writing when I was 12 years old. And I've been writing almost every single day for the past 16 years. And the reason I write is because I'm self-authoring. And there are people who are self-painting. There are people who are self-talking. But creativity is about an artful engagement with spiritual intention. And so what I really want to tell people is like all of us can develop a creative practice. And that doesn't have to be what society thinks of as a good creative practice. I'm not saying I want you to be a professional painter or like a professional poet. Like I'm not expecting that of you. But what I am expecting is like keeping a daily journal. What I am expecting about is like even in your meditation, if you're not meditating, meditate. And in your meditation, just imagine. Imagining is a form of creativity. And what you actually find is that when you develop a creative practice, the layers of sedimentation of all the socializing and priming that we have, the things that began that were once understood as permanent and indelible, those things begin to wear off and you see your true skin. And a lot of people ask me, look, how do you keep going? And it's like, I know who the fuck I am. A lot of people don't know who they are and that's why they are so mean to me because they experience a huge crisis every time they see me. When I see people who are different than me, I'm like, oh, okay, word, cool. Another person is different. That's interesting. But you experience a crisis because you're insecure, because you see someone who actually knows who they are and and you're terrified by that light. And so you run in the opposite direction. And so what I've learned is that through my creative practice, I figured out my gender. It wasn't this kind of pre-organic, I've always known. No, I, I was socialized into a binary gender system which didn't give me any language to articulate myself. So yeah, I mean, I, I've seen you evolve over the 10 years we've known each other. Absolutely. When we first met, the only term I had access to was gay. And so when I came out, when I was 17, 18 years old, I was using that word. And then I went to university with you and I started to learn new words. And then at that point I was like, okay, you know, I'm genderqueer, but I don't care about pronouns and I don't, I don't care about what I wear, but, but it was a very different thing to wear what I wanted on a college campus where everyone knew me. And I just want to stay, stay here on this podcast. I was doing Lady Gaga fashion before Lady Gaga ever was. And <laughs> let it testify to that. I would walk yes, into the testified. hall with massive sunglasses and like power boots and like cut up dresses. And people were like, why are you dressed up? And I'm like, why are you not? You know, I was just very... <laughs> well, every, and every Wednesday, there was a party at one of the houses on campus. It was like a weekly happy hour. And every Wednesday, Alok would show up in the most amazing pre Lady Gaga fashion and just Vogue. Like, yeah, this wasn't even like a school happy hour. This was like a Lokes Vogue party. (laughs) (laughs) I was just really figuring out myself. And, and then when I left school and I moved to New York city, that's when I started to really realize, Oh wait, there's something I really, that feels really important to me. And I, and I want to say that it's okay for things to change and be fluid. Because, you know, at one, at one era in your life, you might feel like this is who you are. And another era in your life, you might feel like this. That's what I mean about process. That there's so much less pressure in me about, like, taking on new opportunities. Because I never think of anything as definitional. I just think of every, every rule to me as a suggestion. Every identity is a suggestion. Every word is a suggestion. And I'm just moving on. But I, I think the point I really wanted to make is creativity for me and for so many people that I love has allowed us to actually look past the bullshit and develop a relationship with our image that's unmediated by what has been packaged and sold to us. I can genuinely say that when I look in the mirror, I'm not 100% there because I don't believe in that, but I am so far to self-acceptance that I'm like, oh yeah, word, cool. And that's what's so confusing to me when people are so upset about my image. I'm just like, I don't see the same thing. So how do you get to that place? I mean, is it just years of, I mean, it's years of work. 
So I'm not going to be able to give you like a prescription on here's exactly what you do to find your own self image. But what I can do is talk about my life and hope that there are lessons that people can, can make with theirs. When I was growing up in a small town in Texas, I had to live a fantasy of what other people wanted me to be. I perfected the art of invisibilizing myself as I was visible. And it was not a, period, a paradox. It was just my existence. Just survival. Yep. And I've been reading a lot of my poems from when I was in high school. And in my poems was the only place that I was honest. I would write things like, we all wear masks. <laughs> I'd write things like, during the day, we pretend that we're great, but at night, we weep alone. Like, I was very emo, but I was honest. And art was the only place that I could be free. Like I would read books, fantasy books and sci-fi books and, and those kind of like made up stories I could have solace and and I would watch movies and stay up all night watching shows like Queer as Folk and like being like, oh my God, there's another world. But the person that I was giving to other people was what other people wanted, not what I wanted. And that almost killed me. Like I was severely depressed, but I was functionally depressed. And I don't think people understand functional depression. I, everything that I did, there was no pleasure to it. Everything that I did felt like an obligation. I felt disassociated, meaning that I don't remember the majority of my childhood. I just don't like people, people speak about things that I did or things that I said. And I, I just don't remember. It's like, I'm hearing about a stranger. I just feel so disconnected from the first half of my life. And I understand why, because as a trauma coping strategy, I disassociate and I'm not shaming myself for that. That, that helped me survive and I'm grateful for that. But now but you understand why that was happening and that was yeah. a protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. And now I'm understanding that the strategies that I developed for survival as a young person don't have to be my strategies forever and that I can shed skins. And so I think one of the biggest differences between then and now is now, then and now I still experience abuse and I still experience harassment and discrimination. And I don't want to underestimate that because for if you're a gender non-conforming person, there is no before and after where it's like you're bullied in high school and then you're accepted when you're an adult, like we're bullied forever. But the difference is I now have friends and community that I can say, this is happening to me. Whereas when I was younger, I couldn't tell anyone because if I told anyone, then I'd be persecuted more. And the difference now is community. And I cannot underemphasize the importance of community. Community is not just people who follow you on social media. Community is, for me, my working definition of community is people I can call during crisis, is people who, if I'm afraid of violence, I can call, if people who I'm having a breakdown, I can call, if people who I need to strategize around family health. It's people who are really there to rally for me. That is community. And so for me, I had to learn how to develop close relationships with people that were interdependent and to build family. And this is one of the joys of being trans. A lot of times people speak about the pain and the anguish, but what I found is that, yes, of course there's anguish, but there's also incredible joy because I had the opportunity to develop very vulnerable relationships very early on because all of us feared violence and rejection and all of us didn't have stability. And so we became each other's stability. And the kinds of relationships that I made with other trans and gender variant people, those, those saved my life because what I had for the first time was people who said, I love you for you, not for who you're pretending to be. And so when I was loved and love for me is what allowed me to begin the process of self-love because it was very difficult for me to say, I love myself. I was like, especially what? when you're hearing hate from everybody else, especially, but when I had people reinforced to me, you're worthy, you're beautiful, you're dynamic, you're smart, you're intelligent. I was like, Hey, maybe I am. And I started to work on it. And for me, my personal story was as a performer, the stage became where I started to practice vulnerability, practice my gender expression. So I began to wear makeup and, and um, dresses on stage. So I began to cry on stage. So I began to talk about things that I'd never even spoken about anywhere else on stage. I began to just articulate things that had happened to me. I began to remember things. And I would have audiences say, I resonate with what you're saying and, and you're powerful and you're strong and you need to keep going. And that kind of positive validation was so instrumental. And I think we live in a culture that shames people for needing validation. And I say, fuck that. 
I think validation is so important. But we're I think social creatures. Hello. I, but I think it's validation that comes from people who actually care about you, not just random anonymous people on the internet. Because that that I thought that fame would give that to me. Like I thought that like just because people like loved me and followed my work, that would help me. But no, like validation from people who actually understood my struggle, who said I've been through the same thing. And so I think it was a combination of my creative practice, my community, my validation. And then now the person I am, if I was to look at a photo of myself now, when I was, when I first met you, when I was 19, I would have been so horrified. I would have been like, what the hell is this person doing? Because I had so much internalized hatred. And I, and that's why I identify with the men who harass me because I could have said the same things they're saying to me to myself. I could have been one of them. But the difference between me and them is I had people who loved me and cared for me. And my working definition of love and care is not loving and caring for people's ability to assimilate into a category. That's not love to me. My definition of care is not nurturing people into a narrative that is predetermined. You go to college, you get a job, you get a wife, that's when I love you. No, my working definition of care is that when people are messy and idiosyncratic and addicted and angry and breaking down, we still care and love for them. And that's why I say that my gender, my life, my art is a testament to the love and care I've received in my life. And I feel sorry for the people who are harassing me because they've not been loved and cared and the ways that they deserve. I don't know if this relates to, to what we're talking about, but it for some reason made me think of it. And, and I see a lot of clients on the on the gender spectrum on nine who are non-binary. And something that they struggle with as maybe the idea of non-binary is more published about is the sort of like sexualization and objectification. Um, like with that, what was that recent one where there was a you know, male presenting person wearing lingerie. Um, and something that they were talking about is I feel like one of my clients was saying, like, I feel like I'm only accepted because people are able to get like turned on by me. And I wonder like what, what you think about that. Yeah, sure. Um, cause on, on one hand, like we should be able to celebrate that like trans and non-gender binary is sexy, is beautiful because it is. And if you feel like you're only being accepted because of the what you're providing for others, I could see how that could backfire too. Right. It's just reductive to be reduced to our genders. Like we are complex people who are actually very different from one another in the same ways in which racial fetishism, like if people say, I'm just not attracted to Asians, that's literally half the world's population. How on <laughs> earth do you know what every single Asian person ever looks like? What you're doing is you're making a series of assumptions based off of stereotypes that are not actually real. And the same thing is happening when we talk about genders. Or body we, hair. Yeah. People will say, oh, you know, trans and gender non-conforming people are. And I'm like, actually, there's as many ways to be trans as there are trans people. And those stereotypes don't map into our experiences. And mm -hmm. you would never say the same thing about women. You would understand that women come in different sizes, that women come in different political persuasions, that women have different hair textures, that we what, what I'm fighting for as a trans activist is for complexity of the trans experience. My narrative should never be seen as the prototype. It's just one of many. But when there are so few of us, what they'll often do is take one narrative and make that the dominant one. And in, in response to your question, what's happened is that the cisgender imagination of trans people is how people know trans people. They don't know us they know what cis people have said about us. And what we're actually trying to do is to produce media like this podcast that actually features our perspectives so that people can say, hey, maybe my stereotypes and assumptions of trans and gender non-conforming people are actually garbage that's been fed to me by a cis world. Maybe I need to actually listen to trans and gender non-conforming people about how they experience their own lives. So one of the media things coming out is made by you. And I really want to focus some time on that because I want people to go and support. So you've written this new book. Um, tell me about the book and the book drive that's happening right now. Sure. So I'm publishing my first book of prose called Beyond the Gender Binary. And it's coming out on June 2nd. And this book is extremely special and important to me. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it. 
So what a lot of people don't know is that in the past five years, we've seen hundreds of pieces of anti-trans legislation introduced at the local and state level. Essentially what happened is the conservative movement lost the fight around same-sex marriage. So they moved all of their ire towards trans and gender non-conforming people. The problem is, is that most of the donors to the LGBT movement left after same-sex marriage because they're like, oh, you have legal equality. And mm. that is the ways in which trans people who actually started the LGBT movement were thrown under the bus. And now we have to deal with some of the most horrific pieces of legislation. We're talking about places like in Alaska, where they were trying to make you freaking show your birth certificate to enter a restroom. We're talking wow. about places like Tennessee, where they're trying to expand their definitions of banning trans people from public accommodations to include highways, restaurants, public life. We're talking about Idaho, which has passed a bill making it extremely difficult to change our gender markers on our identity documents, which yeah. we know results in more violence because if you're trying to fly in a plane and your identity documents not match up with you, if you get like pulled over for speeding, if a police officer comes up to you, those are all interactions that create more violence. And when we see this legislation- and more trauma. Much more trauma. It also enables and encourages individuals to act out on their anti-trans hatred. Because they're like, oh, the government says it's okay, so I can do this too. And so I started to read all of these laws and these legislations to understand what arguments they were using to justify this human rights violation. And what I do in this book is I create an accessible handbook where I list all of the arguments that people use to undermine trans life with the rebuttals that you can use to speak back against it. So people Ooh. will say, people will say, oh, you're just snowflakes making up new words. And it's like, honey, English is all made up. You don't get mad when words like tweet are invented. You get mad when people make up words about gender and sexuality. That's actually your disguised homophobia and transphobia. This is not about grammar and language because if you were committed to the integrity of grammar and language, you'd still be speaking old English, girl, and you're not speaking old English. <laughs> Language evolves and adapts yes. to communicate concepts. And now we are developing new languages to articulate concepts that are not necessarily new, but that are in need of communication. So I have ways that people can have fiery rebuttals back. And the reason I wanted to do this in a teen press, because it's published by Penguin Teen, is because a lot of the resources for trans and gender non-conforming people are very academic. A lot of the theory and the politics is very inaccessible. I can read that as a gender studies scholar, but not everyone can. <laughs> and so what I really wanted to do was to break it down to its simplest parts so that you could hand this book to your transphobic mom, to your relatives, to anyone, so that you don't have to do the labor of explaining to them why you're valid. This book can do that. So it's literally like a tiny pocket-sized short handbook because I wanted it to actually have an impact that wasn't just, oh, this is a beautiful book to read, but, oh, this is actually a really great handbook that will help me show up. Because I think so many cisgender people tell me, I support the trans and non-binary community 100%. I just don't know what to say. Like when I hear people say these things, like these people are not biological women and they're taking away the biological, how do I respond to that? And this book now is how you respond in a really simple way. And one of the exciting things that I'm doing is with the pandemic, a lot of young LGBT kids are experiencing a mental health crisis. Suicidality is on the rise. A lot of people are struggling because they're locked down with homophobic and transphobic relatives, and they're not able to access supportive community. Yeah, I mean, and you were so, saying community is key. So if you're stuck at home with your transphobic family, what do you do? And a lot of people are not able to access life-affirming surgeries right now and medical care. And so one of the things it's that it's quote I, unquote non-essential. Right. One of the things that I was thinking about is like, okay, this book can reach people even though I can't. And it can be a form of affirmation and validation and celebration for people who really need it right now. So I've partnered up with over 80 community organizations across the country in states like Alabama, Mississippi, Wyoming, Idaho, Iowa, places that are typically ignored. And we are working together to come up with creative ways to distribute this book so it gets directly in the hands of LGBTQ young people. And that's why I say this can be a life-saving resource because I know that if Literally. I was younger and I had access to this kind of literature, I would not have attempted suicide. And I would not because I would have known, oh my gosh, I know that I'm right. Because what happens when you are a trans person is you're gaslit by a society that tells you that you're making it up, 
that you're some freak anomaly, that you have no historical precedent. All of those things are wrong. Trans and gender non-conforming people have been around for thousands of years. We yeah. come from a sacred legacy where in many cultures we were and continue to be worshipped. All of that gets reversed. We are seen as the problem when it's actually not us that's the problem. It's the binary gender system. And I wanted to speak a little bit about what the binary gender system is. I think that's so, crucial, though, what you're saying, because I imagine the folks who are saying those kinds of things that we need rebuttals for are not necessarily going to be people to internalize the rebuttal and like get it or understand it. But it's more for the people who are reading it to know and be challenged by another narrative out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that they'll get it if it's coming from people who are not us. Because here's the truth. If I was to go to dinner with your transphobic family, I mean, I would. Like <laughs> That sounds like fun to me. Thankfully, they're I mean, not, but yes. Yeah, but I'm saying one's trans. Yes. Like, a lot of people wouldn't want to do that, but for me, I'm like, sign me up, because I would put together a stunning outfit. PowerPoint. And I, would, I would demolish these people, because these people online want to speak powerful, speak like, oh, look at me, I'm so strong. Girl, <laughs> I have been studying this stuff for over a decade. I have literally thousands of books to justify everything that I, and you have a mediocre paltry understanding of sixth grade biology, sister. That is not gonna cut it here because (laughs) actually I know biology and you don't. So sign me up. I'm waiting for you to be doctor alone. (laughs) But the difference is people won't listen to me because of what I look like. Whereas our cis allies are more likely to be compelling to people who are transphobic. So what I tell cis allies is when you're speaking about trans issues, don't speak about it as I want to support my friend alone. But instead you say, this issue matters to me because I don't want to live in a family or in a world that treats people like this. This is a fundamental issue about respect. And so when you couch it in the language of me, then people are much more likely to move. So my hope is that our allies, and this is not just straight people, I'm talking about gay, lesbian, bisexual, cis people. And I'm also speaking about binary trans people, because it's important to understand here that non-binary and gender non-conforming people are also thrown under the bus by a trans movement that says that you have to look like a beautiful woman or a beautiful man in order to be worthy, regardless of how expensive that is or whether or not we even want to be doing that. There's so much in-group fighting. So much. My hope is that people with power will use this as a way to go into locations that we can't access and as a way to lobby on our behalf. And that's for me what allyship is about. Allyship is about recognizing if they're coming for one of us, they're coming for all of us. And I feel like we're in this kind of moment right now where I'm really trying to get people to realize. I wrote a poem where one of the lines says, I'm sorry that it took a virus to help me remember that simple fact that we all breathe the same air. And what I meant by that is it should not take a virus to remind us that we're all in this together and that we're all fundamentally interconnected. And fundamentally, when I hear about a violation of any group of people, I don't need to hear like, what are the receipts? Like, what do we, I don't believe it. I fundamentally like, okay, how do I show up? And that's the kind, that's what I want us to have for each other. I'm not saying everyone needs to be an expert in trans issues, but I want you to have the kind of empathy that when you hear about multiple trans women being murdered this year during a pandemic, when you hear about the Trump administration trying to allow doctors to deny treatment to trans patients in the middle of a pandemic, you say that, that hurts me in my gut. Well, I think you named it when you said this is human rights. But I think the truth is a lot of people don't see us as humans. And, yes, and that's, that's true. And, that, and even the pandemic, right? I mean, we're talking about life and death for people. And there are still folks who say, well, I'm above this. You know, right. it's, it hasn't come for me. I'm going to be fine. So who cares about everybody else? Right. And as we were talking about before, that's a trauma response to me. It's, it's literally you have an empathy gap because you're disassociated from your own emotionality. And I get why you're disassociated, because to feel your pain can be one of the most lonely and isolating experiences, because you begin to see the world for what it actually is. You begin to see your marriage for what it is. You begin to see your family for what it is. And then people will start calling you crazy, because when you contradict the template culture, they're going to make you into some freak. 
not into, and some threat, not an invitation to another way to live. But what I want to reinforce to anyone listening is that, yes, there's a slow period where it's so painful, but on the other side of shame, on the other side of disassociation, on the other side of conformity, is such a resplendent and transcendent brilliance that comes from me and Nicoletta literally being able to talk about our deepest emotional feelings without fear. Like how beautiful is that to not have to be afraid of what you feel? And it sounds like that's when you feel most beautiful is being able yeah. to like express that stuff. Totally. I mean, my astrological sign is the cancer. So it's like, <laughs> when we start talking about feelings, I'm like, Whoa! like, and for me, beauty comes from the breakdown, baby. It's like, if I'm heartbroken, you're going to hear about it for three months, no, three years, no, 30 years. And I'm just committed to the emotion, but it's just beautiful to know that I can access what I actually feel. So this book is going to be an example of how to unlearn these toxic beauty norms. Absolutely. Because beauty is deeply intertwined with the gender binary. I want to bring up an example that I write a lot about, which is body hair removal. So 99% of American women remove their body hair. And a lot of people don't understand the history of why this is, and I'd love to explain. So actually, of course, there have been body hair removal practices practiced across the world, practiced for thousands of years. I'm not denying that. But the razor industry in the United States has a specific historical origin that Ooh. began with the fear of migration in the early 19th century, in the early 20th century, migration from Eastern Europe, migration of Jewish people, migration of Greeks, where a lot of Anglo-Saxon white people were like, oh no, we're gonna lose our power. The framework was called white suicide, which is, oh no, these immigrants are gonna come over and take over. Where have we heard this rhetoric before, right? It's got a historical <laughs> presence. Everywhere. And so what essentially then happened is white men were like, we need white women to look so different than these foreign invaders. That we know who's who. And so that they're associated with body hair. When you remove your body hair, you're going to be this beautiful white woman. And they, so hair became racialized as like these foreign others. That's one part. And then secondly, and this one's more complicated, so I'll try to break it down. Secondly, what also a product of, of white racism in this country is, is telling people of color that they look more like animals mm -hmm. and telling white people that they're more like humans. And the racial narrative is, is that white people are more developed or more civilized than black and brown people. So hair became likened to animality in people of color. Mm -hmm. And so the way that white people would show that they were the most superior was by removing their body hair. And so for me, it's like, okay, the reason that so many cis women feel like they have to remove their body hair because they're afraid of being seen as mannish is because of a gender binary that teaches you that hair, which is actually gender neutral, is masculine and is somehow racialized. And that masculinity is racialized and that femininity is seen as something white, right? And what I'm actually trying to say is that a world without the gender binary, people will look at you and say, oh, you have body hair, okay, cool. It's not seen as like, you're a manish. It's not seen as a good or a bad thing. It's seen as just a neutral thing, like having a nose. Or like having an ear. It's just something that you freaking yeah. have. But it becomes politicized because it becomes gendered. And what a world beyond the gender binary is, is we stop gendering arbitrary objects like textiles or clothes. We stop gendering emotions like feelings. We stop gendering professions like airplane stewardess or business CEO, where actually you have infinite options to choose rather than being pre-selected and funneled into one of two trajectories. And that is the thing that is going to help everyone. So World Beyond the Gender Binary is not just about non-binary rights. It's about creating a world where our gender doesn't determine our life chances. I mean, think about that when you're shaving your legs. <laughs> For me, it takes me a fucking long time because I, I too am a hairy person and I have chosen not to do any body hair removal for quite a while and I love it. And it's taken me a while to accept that, but I know that if I were to shave, I would have a lot of time to think. So fucking think about that next time you're shaving your asshole. Right. I mean, people can shave if they want. That's okay. I don't care. Like, you're Listen, what do we, I mean, I don't want to make people feel bad for making the decision to, 
you know, be hairless by choice. And I guess, how do we, how do we differentiate these decisions between like, oh, I, I'm shaving because I like being hairless or I'm shaving because of this historical like racialization and patriarchy? I think everything is informed by history, culture. Um, I don't think there's ever an outside and I'm not trying to model myself as being like, because I don't move my hair, I'm somehow more rebellious than you. No, I don't believe that there's an outside. But I think that what we can do is everything with intention and with solidarity. So what intention looks like is, hey, here are my intentions and why I am doing what I'm doing with my body. And I have a narrative about why that is. And that might not be the most politically just narrative, but you're actually doing some degree of self-reflexivity. And then solidarity is, hey, I'm removing my body here, but I noticed that women who don't get all this vitriol online. I'm going to be in that comment section saying, this woman is beautiful. I'm going to be out there saying trans people don't have to have electrolysis in order to be legitimated as their gender. I'm going to show up for people who are like this. This is the same with body size. This is the same if you get breast enlargements. It's not enough. And this is the same with the queer community. It's not enough to just come out as queer. You need to support other queer people. And I think what's missing in all of these things is solidarity. So in, in my community, a lot of times people say, so-and-so secured the bag. And what securing the bag basically means is became successful or like got money or like got up. And people are allowed to secure the bag. I'm not trying to prevent you from securing the bag, but I'm saying once you have a bag, are you going to take from that bag and give to other people? <laughs> and that's, I think, what's really important to differentiate. I'm not trying to say, this is what you must look like. I'm not trying to create a new norm. I'm not trying to protest a gender norm to create a new gender norm. What I'm actually trying to do is create a world where all of us can self-express and we don't live in that world. We live in a world that will give you more recognition if you're hairless. Like, I'm just going to be honest about something that's happening to me right now. I just posted a beautiful photo of myself in a crop top and a mini skirt. Yep. Saying that I have learned to accept my body hair and that I hate it when people tell me that I'd be more believable as a trans person if I remove my body hair. And that I believe that I am beautiful with my body hair because I come from hairy brown women and I don't doubt their femininity. I know my women and I know that my mother and my sister are women and I'm not gonna disqualify their femininity because they have body hair. they got hair. a little mustache, yeah. Hello, no freaking way. And I post this thing thinking, okay, whatever, it's a beautiful post, whatever. It goes viral. I now have 15,000 likes and I'm reading these comments and people are saying, kill it with fire. People are saying, light a match and that'll burn off all this body hair. People are saying, go back to the concentration camps. People are saying, you're a disgrace to human population. And then you have women. You have women who are some of the most aggressive saying, you will never be a woman. You are too hairy to be a woman. You're a man playing dress up. And I'm just sitting here with all this vitriol and I'm like, okay. Yeah, so, how do you fucking sit with those comments? Like, I know you post and turn them into art and creativity right. and then engage your community, but like, fuck, that's heavy. I understand why people are doing it. And I understand that they're pawns of a larger scheme. And I think this is why reading is so important by my book, Beyond the Gender Writing. Because reading allows you to understand the systematic factors that are happening. And you get this as a, as a therapist. People are responding to the ways that they've been socialized by their families, by their schools, by their communities. And I'm not interested in shaming people for not knowing things. What I'm interested in doing is changing the systems of knowledge production. We need to change sexual health curriculums in this country 100%. Oh, yeah. And it starts there. It starts at reforming our systems and rather than taking away one bad apple, what does that give me? There's just going to be a million more in their place. So mm -hmm. I don't invest my energy in them. Secondly, I know who I am. So when they're saying this shit, I'm like, okay, whatever. It's like so relevant to me. But then thirdly, I have deep compassion for them because they are regurgitating the very things that have been said to them, and especially those women. Those women have been policed into rigid white gender norms and told the only way you'll be lovable, the only way you'll be worthy, the only way you'll be safe. And ironically, they're not even safe in those norms. And so that violates me even more. I'm like, babes, this is all a lie. This is like all delusion. The patriarchal scheme. Our, well, our worth is not linked to our appearance. And our safety should not be linked to our appearance. We should be safe no matter what we wear, no matter 
what we do with our body where no matter how fat we are, no matter how gender non-conforming we are, let's decouple that idea that my physical appearance should have any bearing on my safety. Are you kidding me? And so I just, I've just weaponized a deep compassion. And then I'm able to just be like, oh, okay, you know, it sucks. But the point that I'm making there is my career, my life, my safety, my intelligence, my credibility, my platform would be so much more ambitious and large if I remove my body hair. And it has been a setback at every level. I have agents tell me, please remove your body hair because that will make you more marketable. Has it been something you've been tempted to do? Yes. have caved in? Time and time again for, for, for not because I wanted to, but because I knew that it would make my harassment less because I knew Mm -hmm. that it'd make people believe me for my gender more because I knew that in my career, like as someone who's in the entertainment industry and the media industry, anytime I do an interview, no one's listening to what I'm saying. You look at the comments on any mainstream video interview I've ever done. People are just commenting about my body. (laughs) What is she wearing? (laughs) Yes. But it's mostly about my body hair. He's so ugly. He needs to shave. I'm so distracted by his chest hair. That's disgusting. Why are you putting that on our screens, right? So people can't even listen to what I'm saying. People don't even think I am. I'm literally, I have lectured at over 200 colleges and universities across the country. I am an expert in my field. I have published, I have, I've taught classes. I and have they still find reasons to delegitimize you. And you're going to delegitimize me on the basis of my appearance, on the basis of me showing my chest hair. Are you kidding me? So I know that I'd be taken more seriously if I remove my body hair, but as a matter of principle, I refuse. And that's where I think it's really important to understand we don't have to perpetuate these systems. We can refuse. And I'm asking listeners today, what are you doing to refuse the gender binary? And there's so many things we can do to refuse it every day. When you're asking yourself, is this making me look more masculine or feminine? Be like, fuck it. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? But I do understand. I mean, from what you're saying, you know, for some people, their their lives and their physical safety is at risk. And so I can understand why wearing the mask sometimes feels like an important thing that you have to do. And this is true for people with different sexualities, whether you're kinky, whether you're non-binary, whether you're queer, like whatever it is, this sort of need to have this multiple personality order, basically, where you show up differently right. in different situations, because sometimes it is a question of physical safety Absolutely. or being able to actually have a platform. Absolutely. And I, I totally, like I said, I'm not interested in pleasing individuals. You can do what you need to do. But then what happens is that those people get access to the platform and they shut up. And this is the case when it comes to trans politics in this country. And I'm going to name it here. I've never named it anywhere else. So you're going to hear it first. Yes. <laughs> Every trans person at one point in their trajectory was gender nonconforming and visibly gender nonconforming. And what happens is that people repress those memories of how awful it is to be treated by the world as a gender non-conforming person. And once they get access to be presumed as cis or to quote unquote pass as a woman or a man, they do the exact same things often that cis people were doing to them, to us, rather than saying, no, 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 no. I know how hard it was and I'm going to show up for these people. What they'll say is the same they go back logic into the binary. Mm-hmm, of, well, it'd be easier for you if you shaved or, well, excuse me. And that's so painful because you know what I'm going through. I have had binary trans people in my life refuse to walk in public next to me. Do you know what that feels like to have people who are your friends, who care about you? say mm, they're not my friends anymore that's for sure you know but, what i don't obviously i don't know exactly what it feels like because i am cis presenting and it brings me a lot of pain to hear about friends ex- you know people's experience with that i'm not okay with that as a human it's just not okay it's really not okay i have people literally get up when i sit next to them on a bus and go mm-hmm. and sit elsewhere i have people i have when people are kind to me in public like when someone at Starbucks is literally just like, oh, here you go, have a nice day. I sometimes start crying just because I'm it's normal. so used. I'm so used to people 
shoving me, pushing me, ignoring me, yelling at me. And if you could offer one degree of decency to someone and you're gonna turn around and just do the same thing, but here's the thing, there's an incentive in this culture to distance ourselves from gender non-conforming people. And this is what I write about in the book. The thing is conformity is not community because when you're conforming, your status in that group depends on your ability to bully other people. It's not based off of who you are as a person, it's based off of who you're not, and that's not love. And so that's why I feel sorry for these people because that's not community and that's not love. Real community and real love comes from people who love you when you hiccup, when you fart, when you're sick, when you don't shave, when you're imperfect. Perfection is loneliness. Sadly, we're like starting to run out of time. And I'm bummed about that because I want to keep going on this forever. And this is so crucial. But how can people, how can people celebrate in the work that you're doing? I mean, I think clearly we're talking about trauma and things like that. And I want people to champion and remember the, the work that non-binary folks have been doing throughout the centuries to enable our culture and our society to what it is today. So how can folks celebrate what you're doing and support the, the book drive or other projects that you're doing and, and join you in this and, and, or, and, or be an ally? Mm -hmm. I think the first step is following non-binary and gender non-conforming people on social media. Social media can be really awful, but it can also be a wonderful thing because a lot of people just don't know non-binary gender non-conforming people who are visible in their lives. They're there, but they may not be honest with you about their identities. And so social media can actually be a way to see our day-to-day -day lives, what we go through, the good, the bad. And that's so much more textured than reading about us in a textbook, you know, or like just learning the words. Obviously the words are important, but actually the stories and the day-to-day -day experiences are even more important. Yeah. And then the second thing is trying to familiarize yourself with organizations in your community that work with the LGBT and especially the trans community. Because when I, I've worked with trans organizations across the world, and when cis people actually show up and say, how can I help? People are so moved because there's so much work to be done, you know, especially during this pandemic, when we're going to see much more unemployment, this is going to disproportionately affect the trans community. And there's going to be in the past. I know there's been a discomfort of um, not wanting to put the onus on folks of like, teach me how to treat you. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you put the onus on individuals. I think you go to organizations and say, how can I help out? And yeah. organizations are a place where it's an intermediary between like going up to an individual trans person and be like, what do you need? Tell you know, how to like, treat all the trans people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, oh, for example, I'm an hour after this, I'm doing an Instagram live with Project Q, which is an amazing LGBTQ space there in Los Angeles. And Project Q needs support, you know, it's helping so many at-risk vulnerable folks. And it's like, that can look like simple things like during the holiday season, organizing your friends for a clothing drive that are actually going to give clothing to trans and gender conforming people who are homeless. That could look like actually, if you have a, a job where you can help in a hiring practice, actually say, hey, I think we really need to try to prioritize gender inclusivity in this organization. And maybe we can create an internship that is specifically for trans and gender conforming people that's paid because many trans and gender conforming people are kicked out of education systems and denied access to employment opportunities. So mm -hmm. it's just like in your own practice, I'm not saying go run out and do a new thing in your own job, in your own family. Like when it comes to raising your own kids, regardless of their cis or trans, gender fluidity can be there for any gender. So actually just allowing your kids to express themselves rather than policing them into these gender stereotypes. Yeah, like There's you said, so not genderizing clothes, not genderizing right. tangible things. And allowing people to self-author, to say, hey, here's the name that I want to use, or here are the pronouns that I want to use, and and here's the gender that I want. And, and, and I mean, I get messages from supportive parents across the world, and it's so amazing to see this new generation of parenting, which is actually reversing so much of the harm of the past, which is like allowing, like, people will be like, well, you know, it's just a phase. So what if it's a phase, <laughs> you know, like allow people to experiment because the truth is no, very few people have the opportunity to experiment. For me, when I was a kid, my parents let me experiment and I am a testament to what loving parenting can look like because my parents were feminists. And when I was five or six years old, I said, I want to wear my sister's clothes and they let me. And when I said, I want to do lip sync Bollywood dance sequences, <laughs> they let me. 
and they congratulated me. And when I said I wanted to do gymnastics, they said, sure. When I said I wanted to be a professional fashion designer when I grew up, they said, amazing. It was my school that was telling me that I couldn't be any of those things. And the one thing my parents didn't do, which I wish they had, was had created a space in our relationship where I could speak about the bullying that I was going through. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to protect my parents. So I didn't tell them what I was enduring at school. And what I wish that my parents had done has been like, hey, I just want to check in. Like, what's school like? What are people saying to you? You know, I remember, wow, we're getting a little time. Well, they almost thought that like everyone would maybe respond the way they were responding and forgetting to check in about that. Right. I remember one time, I think it was like I was in seventh or eighth grade. And my sister told my mom that one of her classmates had overheard someone calling me a faggot. And I remember sitting there in the parking lot of my middle school and my mom like locked the doors and she was like, what? She was furious. She was like, what the hell happened? Like she was like mama bear ready to go in. And it was too late. That was seventh grade. I had practiced Mm -hmm. and perfected the art of lying about this stuff. And pretending to be fine. So I was like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's like, not not an issue. Like, it's fine. I don't want to talk about it. And it's just like, that breaks my heart because there's, it shouldn't take the, the violence to check in with your kid. And this is not even about your queer or trans kids because straight cis kids get bullied for being presumed as queer and trans. I remember when I was in fifth grade, people said liking Coldplay was akin to being gay. Okay. Like, <laughs> like this is how ridiculous the gender binary is. I mean, I'm not a huge fan, but that's fucked up. That's how we all suffer from the gender binary is that so many cis men are told that like, if they're sensitive, they're feminine. And so many cis women are told if they're ambitious, then they're not womanly. Fuck that. Yeah. Oh, Alok, I'm so grateful for you and, and the work that you're doing. And I want to have you talk forever on this. And I sometimes like was finding myself during this interview of like, not even being able to form the words to ask questions because I was like doing so much self like work and reflection as you were talking, like it it was, it was really powerful for me. And I know that it will be for our audience and um, how can people find you and follow what you're doing? Sure. Um, And if you're not already, you must. I'm addicted to Instagram. So that's the best place. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what, just as a last thing, I think to me, what's really highlighted in you getting to a place in the work that you're doing is now instead of trying to fit in to make other people feel comfortable with you and like have you be digestible, you're letting them be uncomfortable with you. You know what I mean? You're like, okay, now it's time for these cis people to just deal with their discomfort and fucking deal right. with me. Exactly. And to me, that's sort of the transition point from going to um, yeah, from from practicing that self-love and appreciation. Right. I just literally genuinely do not care <laughs> what these ridiculous tomfoolerists, I just made up a new word. If you're not going to like Nutella, why are we even chatting? <laughs> okay. Like, please. So yes, how can people follow your Instagram? Oh yeah, yeah. It's at A-L-O-K-V-M-E-N-O-N. And again, if you want to follow what I'm doing at Sluts and Scholars, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Slut Scholars. And if you are struggling and need additional resources, you can email me at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And please, before June 9th, um, go support Alok's book drive so we can get that material into the homes and the hands of the people who really need it and could benefit from it. Thank you so much. I love you. Thanks for having me.